Matumaron, Hake Anni David Peterson, Ma An Hadothrak, Californian Son, An Hastoki Dothraki, Ma Yeri Chari Haji The Fluent Show. Welcome to The Fluent Show, a podcast all about loving. Living and learning languages. Hello, everyone. My name is Kirsten Cable from fluentlanguage.co.uk, and I'm here to talk about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. And today, listeners, I am I'm over the moon. You've probably already read it in the show description. I have such an interesting interview with such an interesting masterful, impressive guest for you. It really was a privilege this week to speak to David Peterson. Uh, if you've never heard about David Peterson, he is the man who created the languages that you heard in many, many famous TV shows, probably most famously of all Game of Thrones. So he created Dothraki and High Valyrian, also shows like The 100, shows like Doctor Strange or films like Doctor Strange and even a makeup challenge. So David and I recorded this interview, <laughs> I'll tell you this right now, it was really fun. This is my first ever in situ interview, meaning I went to London and met him in person. We actually recorded in the same room rather than speaking to each other on Skype. So that's brilliant. You will hear every now and then that the room was ever so slightly echoey, but we really did our best. There's so much in this interview. I really want to tell you about how how it <laughs> for lack of a better word, I sort of went on a bit of a journey because I don't think I really understood why and how language creation matters beforehand. I don't think I really understood why you'd ever create a language if if no one else is, is going to learn it or why even creating a language is is so significant. And as as the interview progresses, you will hear me coming around and understanding and and developing this appreciation. So I hope I can take you along with me. And if you've ever wondered more about the intentions of creating a language and why, for example, why languages that are created, like Dothraki, have such a complicated grammar instead of just being easy. Well, it turns out that's a fallacy and David David really explained it well. And I we, we got to discuss many, many things such as the actors on set um, that have to deal with the language that you have created with them, how they react, why language creators don't really learn each other's languages, and why even it's a fallacy to think anybody might create a language because they want other people to learn it. Turns out that's not the case. So there was so, so much in there. I can't wait to get this started for you. Of course, before we crack on, there is an important shout out that I do want to give, which is to our sponsor, Made It All Possible, brought you this wonderful interview. The Fluent Show this week is supported by Yabla. Yabla is a video platform 
helping you gain language immersion, but really comprehensible input, not just, you know, a wall of language that you don't understand. Instead, they create engaging videos that they have subtitled in two languages and really edited for you and put into this amazing player system where there's custom playback and there's a learning game and you can create flashcards. It really is the premier video platform for language learners. It's available in Spanish, English, Italian, French, German and Chinese. And there are lots and lots of tools to just have a go and make get more out of the language that you are learning. You can stream authentic shows. So it's, you know, YouTube videos, the kind of things that you would look for in your target language rather than things that are created for language learners that are very boring. This is really engaging content. I've been enjoying reality shows in Chinese, which is impossible for me at my normal Chinese level. Give it a go. Have a look, stream these shows and you'll be learning at the same time. And the link for that to try out a free month is yabla.com slash fluentshow. That is yabla.com slash fluentshow. And a big thank you to the Patreon supporters of The Fluent Show, just in case you didn't know yet. The Fluent Show is now on Patreon, which is a website where you can become a direct supporter of the show, keep us going, help us make the most make the most interesting language learning content, the most useful language learning content, bring more interviews, bring better shows. Patreon supporters are benefiting from a range of wonderful extras. So we make bonus episodes now and then. I do have a little bonus with David Peterson that I'm going to be putting on Patreon exclusively for the patrons of the show. We've got exciting, ambitious goals that we want to meet with Patreon. So do take a look. It's patreon.com slash fluentshow where you can become a patron, a direct supporter of the show. I already told you about my my own <laughs> interviewer journey with David Peterson. And before I crack on, I just want to recommend as well, if you are interested, if you find yourself really fascinated by this in the way that I am, I would recommend David Peterson's book, which is The Art of Language Invention. I'll put that in the show notes for you. And and I want to thank David for his incredible patience and commitment to making this interview happen I started out by asking him whether he was always a language person. So that's where we're going to enter into this interview. David Peterson, creator of many and invented wonderful language. No, no, I wasn't a language person. I was kind of an anti-language person for, you know, for 17 or so years of my life. I came from a family where, uh, you know, most everybody spoke English and Spanish but um, I kind of had my my language learning cut off uh, artificially at uh, at a young age, and so I never caught up, and so it frustrated me. You know, whenever anybody around me would speak Spanish, because I felt like I should understand it, but I didn't. Um, so I kind of rebelled against it. Uh, I, w I wasn't really interested in language at all until it just kind of happened one day when I was 17. And then I was suddenly interested in learning every language, you know, every language that I possibly could. Yeah. What happened? Nothing. I just woke up one morning and I wanted to learn every language. How did you react to that? What did you do? Well, the first thing I did was I started asking around uh, a friend of mine, um, 
had a spare French textbook. Yeah, she she was Vietnamese, and so there were for a lot of Vietnamese they would study French just on their own. And so she just had a spare French textbook that she gave to me. So I started, you know, kind of going through that and learning that. It turned out we had a Latin book at home, so I started going through that. And then um, my last year of high school, I signed up for the first year of German in addition to my last year of Spanish. Um, and that was fun. I wanted to take French too, but um, the only French that was available was the second year of French, and they wouldn't let me into it without taking the first year, which <laughs> I think was a mistake. I could have done it. Did you feel a sense of, of ownership over the, the languages, or was it just language as a communication system in general? Just really, I want to know everything about how this whole thing works. I don't think I've ever thought of it in those terms. It was more just the languages existed, or it's like these abilities existed, I guess, and I didn't have them, and I and I wanted them. Yeah, you know, I wanted to be able to just speak and understand every single language. Yeah, I don't know. I've certainly never thought of owning them. I don't think you can. They're languages. It's not possible. Yeah. Oh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about creating a language. Oh, you're talking about when I create. The no, language. I'm thinking about yeah. the difference. You know, you hmm. you when you create a language, you you maintain a certain level of control over it. Well, my version of it, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, but it's it's still just my version. I, I created in a particular state and with a particular set of vocabulary, and it's a way that I intend for it to be used, understood, and spoken. But um, even so, first, it's hard to it's hard to fully and thoroughly describe exactly what one's intentions are. Um, I could like it, like I can write down whatever I want and try to convey that to other people. But then, when I sit down to do translation, it comes out a particular way. When they do, I've noticed that it doesn't always work the same way, and so it's like clearly I'm not conveying it well enough or thoroughly enough i don't think i ever could so you know uh when i die the exact way that i do valerian or whatever way i translate into valerian or dothraki or anything that'll be gone um and so whatever's left is not going to be exactly the way i do the language but that's fine you know others can do whatever they want with it i guess it's similar to um any writer you know like You can try to write like Virginia Woolf, but you're not going to. You can get close to emulating her style and try to figure out what the hallmarks of her style are, but you're not going to write like her. Nobody ever could. First of all, because she was the best ever, but also just because, you know, everybody's style is unique. And the same is true when you use a language that you created, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. See, I'm thinking about... I'm thinking about Dothraki, Valyrian, languages that have to exist in a world that somebody else has already created. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you you kind of, you've got to take a path through somebody else's world, but you're still yeah. creating your own. Mm -hmm. How does that feel? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that a lot of uh, creators really understand the extent that you're actually fleshing out their world when you're creating a language. Um, it's impossible not to. When you're creating vocabulary, that vocabulary of necessity pins down both uh, an aspect of those people who speak it 
and the world they inhabit. Mm -hmm. Simply by coming up with words for things, you say, well, that thing now exists in this world. Otherwise, how could they have a word for it? Not only that, if it's a native word, then it's likely that it's something that has been with them for quite some time. And the way that they name it gives you an idea what they think about it, or at least what those who originally coined the word thought about it. Um, if they borrowed it, that also says something different, you know, that they would borrow it from somebody else. And then, of course, you have to create that borrowing and so on. I want to ask you about when you first started with conlang creation and when mm -hmm. that first kind of started taking, you know, sort of t t taking a part in your life. Well, during my first linguistics course. Right. So I was 19 um, and I was taking introductory linguistics. And then I kind of got the idea to create my own language because I was seeing a lot of really cool things, you know, studying a lot of really cool features in, um, in you know, in linguistics from a wide variety of languages. And I was thinking, what if there was a language that only did the things that I liked best? Right. And so, you know, I, I tried creating my own language that did that. It's kind of a disaster, but you know that was that was enough to be the seed, and then yeah, I just kept up with it um, because it, I really really enjoyed it, and it's been about twenty years now. What do you enjoy about it? Oh, everything. I think it's um, just a fantastic art form because it's multifarious in that there are very technical aspects, like for grammar and things like that. Um, and some things that are very puzzle-like, uh, well, at the same time, creating, uh, the lexicon, creating words is, is more like writing, you know, you're writing the story of a people, you know? And so, um, there are two very different aspects to it. And then of course, when you create a writing system, that's more visual art, which is also really, really fun. Um, and like the worst and best part about it is that, no matter how long you work on your language, it will never be done. So it gets more and more complete as you work on it, but there's never a point in time where there's nothing to do with the language. Like never. The language is, I guess, a created product. Um, and the decisions that one makes um, crucially affect the outcome. And so, you know, it's just like, it's just like music. It's just like writing a novel. Um, you get to create every single element and every single choice informs the creation and is quite important. And you could have made several different types of choices. And so, you know, pretty much just like any other art. Yeah. It's like storytelling. Storytelling through the, the lexicon. Yes. Uh, but when it comes to the grammar itself, that's, I mean, that's just a system. Mm. So it's just like creating a game or creating a car. Same thing. Is there a set process when you start making, when you start creating a language? No, really. No. How um, do you start? Uh, I usually start, if it's a spoken language, I start with the phonology. Uh, but that's if it's a spoken language. If it's a sign language, I also start with the phonology, but the phonology isn't sound-based. It's uh, it's manual. Um, but, you know, sometimes you create like a visual-only language, like a written language. In that case, it doesn't really make sense. You start somewhere else. Um there, it's usually with the style, trying to figure that out, and then you move on to the grammar because that becomes crucially important. Um, and yeah, so after the sound system, I go to the grammar, 
usually start with nouns because nouns are easier and more concrete. Move on to the verbs, which are more difficult. Then you move on to other stuff, you know, other parts of speech if they're going to be there um, and how exactly they're going to work. And you just move on little bit by bit, filling things in, and uh, eventually you get to a point where you're not really working on grammar anymore. You're just working on the lexicon. And that's a part that just kind of takes the rest of time, rest of your life to complete, except that you never will complete it. Now, I attended the Dothraki class that you taught in Canada. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I was so fascinated. And, and I, the thing that really caught my eye was that the way that you talk about the language, the way that you present the language, the way that you, you teach is really mm. your teaching. Mm. you've completely keep teaching and you've got such an in-depth familiarity with it to the extent where if somebody puts their hand up and goes like well but if a preposition ends in a vowel and then the next word starts in a vowel is there anything that you do to bridge that and you wouldn't know the answer because you've yeah. thought about all that so like already and something that stood out to me was well was that the grammar of dothraki which is what we were learning is mm. is really complex Yeah, I mean... Why so complex? Well, the grammar of any language that you create is going to inherently be complex. Um, where the complexity lies is what differs. And also, how much was created versus how much was assumed. So you can sit down and create a language very quickly, you know, and basically just say, all right, it's just like English except for... The word for keyboard is blibbit, and that's it. And it's like, all right, you haven't done very much. The grammar is still quite complex, but that's because the complexity mm -hmm. was just borrowed straight from English. Mm -hmm. So as a language creator, if you start sitting down and working with this stuff, right, um, you might decide like, you know, especially early on, they'll decide, okay, I'm going to say that there's going to be five different tenses, and then you map out these different tenses. Um, but then not really pay much attention to anything like relative clauses or subordinate clauses or things like that. And so then when they come up, you kind of default to whatever your first language is and just do it that way. And so really, it's not like it's not complex. It's more like you just didn't think about it. And so it was plagiarized, you know, <laughs> probably unintentionally. Um, so when you're creating, uh, if you really want to do the uh, a good job creating the language, You have to think about every single aspect of it and decide exactly how it's going to work. And then um, then at the very least, you've actually created the whole thing. After that, there's a second level of deciding, all right, so you actually did go through and decide how everything was going to be. Did it all make sense? Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and like, did it follow based on the logic of the language? And then what were the, what were the steps you took to get there? Um, And then you can just step back and say aesthetically what the result is, but that's more subjective. Um, so it's like with with Dothraki, for example, I decided that at an earlier stage, the word order was going to be verb initial and that they would have transitioned to a stage where it became subject initial just via movement. Um, and so then that plays out throughout the rest of the grammar so that, for example, when you go to relative clauses, that's where you see the older word order pop up. Um, it's not relevant, obviously, for all relative clauses. So, for example, if there's no subject, or rather if the gap is associated with the subject, it'll look exactly like an English relative clause. Mm -hmm. But when it's the other way, so when it's the object that's being relativized for 
suddenly you get this relative clause where it's like, you know, relative word, verb, subject. And I'll be like, oh, that's weird. It's different from English. And it's like, yes, that's right. It is different from English. It's different intentionally, and it's different for a very specific reason. So mm. that's that's kind of the goal. When you create a language for a, a TV show, mm -hmm. how do the actors react to this? Most of the time, the actors react pretty well. Um, a lot of them find it to be helpful uh, because one thing that actors always have to do is figure out what what am I going to do to get in the headspace of this character so that it's not me, so that it's different. And it's really helpful to have some sort of like very obvious trick to get them into it. So like this is why you see like, you know, Sometimes you'll see characters that have a particular accent or characters that have like a very particular physical feature and that'll help. So a lot of the actors that I've talked to said that having a created language, it's like that's something that can help them immediately get into this character and inform them. So that's cool. Every so often you have an actor react negatively, um, but usually they end up not getting um, any lines in the created language because <laughs> that's just kind of the way Hollywood works. It's like, you know. If you're excited about something great, then you're going to do it. If you're not and you're a big enough actor, then they that just doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Is it like I'm thinking I'm thinking of the reasons a lot of people learn a language mm. and this the the show is for people who are learning languages and people who kind of mm. feel that drive to just you know take in as much so we got this intellectual curiosity, but a lot of people learn languages for For, for connection or for talking to friends and something like that. And mm -hmm. it feels to me like that is the closest if you're an actor and you have to inhabit a role and, and the world of that person and all of the um, other people who are around you in that, in that moment, that's the closest motivation I can think of to learn, to learn a, a fictional language. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If it's there. Honestly, like most of the people that learn is just like, oh, you can learn that. All right. Doesn't really go beyond that. You know, it's like um, I remember the the very first time I heard that Klingon was a language, which was after I started creating a language like, but I heard that, you know, I I never gave it a thought. Then I heard that Klingon was actually a full constructed language. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, that's interesting. I went and looked it up and I saw that there were. Um, there were like courses on the website and so I was like, all right, yeah. So I pulled them down and started learning for no other reason than that they were there. So why wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people come to it that way. Um, you know, especially in a place uh, like America, it's honestly a fiction for <laughs> people <laughs> that people would be learning languages to talk to other people. They don't do that. <laughs> I don't. I mean, look at our high schools, right? Like, where the majority of languages taught are Spanish, French, and German. Spanish, yes, that's it, it's a huge part of life in the United States. But French and German, no, mm. <laughs> not anymore. And, and so, and so, you know, people take them though. They love learning French and German, but to the idea that they're going to be talking to people, they're not. They're not. I mean, it can just be purely for the joy of it. There doesn't need to be a reason. Did you did you feel 
a desire to learn fictional languages? Did you do a lot of stuff with conlangs before you started making your own? No, I didn't know that anybody. Uh, yeah, so to be clear, the only constructed language I knew about was Esperanto. Right. Um, and oddly enough, there was a class. That's how I learned about it. It was advertised on the door of my dorm that mm -hmm. there was going to be a class on Esperanto. And I was like, oh, wow, that's wild. So I took it. Um, that was the first time I'd heard of somebody creating a language. The only others that I heard of at that time were Esperanto's competitors in like the history section of our textbooks. So this is things like Occidental, Novial, and Edo. And that was it. Um, I didn't know that there were other created languages. When I created my first language, I thought I was the first person ever to do it for fun. I thought that before that, the only languages that had ever been created were for international communication like Esperanto. Right. Um, so, you know, I wasn't, simply wasn't aware. Um, it kind of blew me away that Tolkien had created languages. I'd of course heard of him, but I didn't know that. It blew me away that Klingon was a language. I watched Star Trek The Next Generation. I didn't think of that either. Um, and then of course, you know, I met many, many, many other people who created languages for fun and that was really cool. But those of us that were in the created language community, you know, we didn't, we didn't learn each other's languages. We, um we looked at each other's work and appreciated it, you know, I guess, um, well, let's say like you're in a community of writers, it would be like, you know, reading and appreciating each other's work versus like setting up a fan club for like your fellow writer's book and like cosplaying as their characters. <laughs> like you wouldn't do that. But, you know, you, you'd read their book when it comes out and say, yeah, you did a, you did a great job. Uh, many of us weren't creating these languages for other people to learn them. Mm. It was just because that's what we'd like to do. And it was awesome that there were other people out there that could actually see the choices that we made when we were creating these languages and appreciate what we had done. Like, you know, appreciate the systematicity behind it like mm -hmm. and, and how well we did it. They could actually have an informed opinion about how well we did what we did, you know. The comparison to a writer's group makes a lot of sense to me. That yeah. it's it's really you 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 bring your whole do you always bring your whole personal self to every language that you create? No, I can't imagine not doing that. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how you do that. <laughs> So, in t okay, so in terms of, if we're thinking about all the languages you have created, mm -hmm. to what extent are they influenced, that they must be, right? To what extent are they influenced by the languages you know? Do you feel there's a, there's a gap? Do you, do you look for a perfect creation at some point? No, I mean, it's, it's not really... Uh, language creators go through phases. I really look at it as three phases. The first phase is you create the language as if, you know, you were imagining that you're creating the one and only language that is ever going to be. And so it is the way it should be based on your understanding. Then as you grow as a language creator, you realize, oh, wait a minute, I actually had tons of different choices. Those weren't my only choices. I thought they were, but they weren't. And so what language creators then do is they tend to go on to like this kind of copying phase or emulating phase where it'd be like, I really like Turkish. So I'm going to create a language that's very, very similar to Turkish. And it's like, oh, I also like uh, Hungarian. So I'm going to create a language that's very similar to Hungarian. 
And you kind of go through that those phases a bit and create these kind of like copy languages. Then after that, you realize, wait a minute, I I kind of know how languages can vary at every single step. So I don't need to be influenced by anything. I can just create it how I want. And that's the last stage. You know, it's not that you chose this word order because it was like, you know, Japanese or Hitchkariana. You chose it because that's what you wanted to do. Um, every choice that you make is going to be similar to some other language, but it's not necessarily the case that you even know it. I remember when I was, um, when I was studying Japanese for the first time, you know, they, it's a big to do about learning how their relative clauses work because they're very, very different from English. And I remember when I was going through the section, I was like, oh yeah, this is exactly how relative clauses in Castathan work. I'm glad to see I got that right. But it wasn't like they were inspired by Japanese. I just kind of did it because that's what made sense for the language. And I was, you know, I was pleased to see that what I had done, you know, did actually show up in a natural language, but it wasn't like it influenced me. To what extent do language creators overlap with what we're going to call polyglots? So people who are just really into learning all of the languages. Oh, yeah. That Venn diagram is really, it's almost a circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tons. So it's really a sense of like, I want to have as many languages, I want to know as many languages as possible, but this, but even more so, I want to engage with them and actually create something. Well, I, I've actually, I'd say, I'd almost want to say it's a 50-50 split. Those that start as polyglots who are really interested in a bunch of languages who then get to language creation versus those who start with language creation and then develop an interest for learning other languages. Mm -hmm. uh, I they get there of course so it's like if it's been a few years yeah they're all going to be either polyglots or really interested in learning many languages but not necessarily all language creators start that way there are a number like uh, especially in america who might just be you know monolingual english speakers but who after they create a language you know suddenly start finding other created languages then start finding other languages because we just talk about languages all the time And so then find an interest and start learning other languages, you know? Is there anything that you create? I keep wanting to say, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it about it, when you're creating the language, you're, mm -hmm. you're creating a tool, yeah. right? But you're also creating a world and you're telling mm -hmm. a story about how this all came to be. Yes. Do you then also want to do things with the language as in write poetry, write stories? Or is that sort mm -hmm. of like, no, that's cool, I'm done? mostly I, mostly it's just i'd say i'm done i mean usually you know i want to do something with it maybe an art project at this stage though i've got so many projects going that i tend not to do anything with them you know aside from you know whatever work i'm doing with them um but that's always the goal i don't know if something strikes my fancy then i i do it uh you know i look forward to the day where I'm basically retired and I can just spend time with all the languages I've created and go back, you know, keep expanding on them and then decide if there's some project that I have in mind for them. Mm -hmm. You know, in the early days I had, when I would create a language, I did have some sort of specific project in mind. 
it was always different for each one, but, um, they're always big ambitious ones and I never got around to completing them, starting them, but not completing them. Mm. Um, but you know, I don't know. They're just out there. Like I always have a top level goal for all my languages of hitting 10,000 words. That would be great. I've never come close. Like my the one with the largest vocabulary is Dothraki. It's only got about forty five hundred words. Mm. Yeah. Is the language then when somebody learns it? I'm thinking Klingon and how Klingon mm-hmm. almost kind of went beyond that. And Klingon is usable in real life to, yep. to, to most extents for all intents and purposes. And you've got, you've got Duolingo mm-hmm. Dothraki. You've got living language Dothraki. Yeah. Is the, is the dream for people to be able to live their lives in this other language? I mean, not for me. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if they want to, then that's really cool. Yeah. But no, that's, that's not what I care about. So you don't, you don't feel like, if I don't know if I okay if I was making if I if I'd made a language mm-hmm. it would be fairly bad if I'd made a language <laughs> that is fairly rubbish and and I was able to make, say do a Duolingo in that language yeah I would just I'd be so proud <laughs> I'd be so like I'd try and make everybody learn it I'd be like come into my world yeah we're gonna do this thing for, also I'm gonna be the queen of this <laughs> for me like the end goal was creating the course and it's not quite done yet. Like I'm still working on it. Um, and so it, I was, I was very, very proud to have been able to create a course. I mean, that's a dream of like any language creator, and, you know, it was a lot of work and it was a lot of fun and I like what I did, but that was where I guess that, that was where it stopped. I didn't actually care if anybody took it. It was just to be able to do it, you know, to see it there, have a little dragon icon. It's wonderful. Um, I didn't imagine that people would take it, but I also, it just didn't matter to me. Turns out a lot of people did take it. Like, it's pretty nuts. There's a million active users, which is pretty wild. I can't even really fathom that. I honestly, I, I can't. I don't even understand it. Like, I can't relate to that many people taking the course honestly it just makes me feel bad because it's like oh gosh there's still there's still work to be done (laughs) (laughs) but um but no i didn't i didn't need people to be taking it it was more like having the opportunity to do it and then doing it is it about engaging like that deeply teaching a language that you've created it must be different I don't know. I mean, yeah, that, that, and that was, that was kind of a fun thing. Cause <laughs> I had a point where it's like, oh yeah, I actually do have to teach this. How do I do that? That was fun. That was fun. But I mean, um, it was really kind of more about, I don't know, it seems kind of silly, but it's kind of like if you, if you're, if you're an architect and then you build a building, then you know, it's cool to get the opportunity to do that. It's cool to build it. And then when it's done, it's cool to sit there and say, ah, yes, that was good. And you can admire it and and point to it and say, look, that's done. You know, I did that. That's really cool. But then I don't know, like, would you really care if a bunch of people went and saw it afterwards? Like, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> you, 
So you you create it to because you want to say like this is what I want to put into the world. Yeah. Through through Game of Thrones and stuff, obviously there's a there's a level of of fame that comes with the show mm. and a level of of being in demand. So to what extent are you are you creating languages all the time now? Yeah. Yeah, I've been creating languages full time for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's been really cool being able to do that. Um, there are certainly parts of the job that um, are not great. Like, you know, deadlines are very strict in Hollywood. Um, and, you know, collaborating with others sometimes isn't the best because you're collaborating with somebody that doesn't understand language. And so they don't know the constraints. And so when they say do this and you say, no, this language can't do that. And then they say do it anyway. It's like, uh, <laughs> but you know other than that um i just uh, i get to spend most of my time creating language i will say that one part of the job that i didn't that that uh, ends up taking him up the greatest amount of time that i didn't give a lot of thought to ahead of time is most of the job is translation and i discovered that i hate translation <laughs> <laughs> I love creating languages. I love creating languages and that's still so much fun. But God, translation is such tedium. And I also feel like I'm just not very good at it sometimes. <laughs> and this is translation into into the language that you Yeah. You well, I want to say you own, but you kind of don't no. then, right? Once no. it exists, Nobody it owns it. itself. Nobody owns a language. You can't own a language. Wow. Does does HBO own Dothraki? They believe so, yes. Uh-huh. How does that play out in reality? What does it mean to say that you own a language? Like, literally, what does it mean? Yeah. It means nothing. <laughs> well, there was that case around Klingon that I thought was really interesting. They That somebody actually, what was it, got sued by Paramount. Yeah. Because they, they created something in Klingon, and Paramount goes, no, no, no. Yeah. And you then, can't. It's copyright. And then Paramount, Paramount were forced to back down. Yeah. Because they knew... They knew that was a case they weren't going to win. I mean, because you can't. Nobody can own a language. Let's say that you did. Let's say that they went to the Supreme Court and said, by God darn it, Paramount owns that Klingon, all right? (laughs) Okay. So in the United States, sure. And somebody writes a book in Klingon in Russia. Now what are you going to do? And so, all right, fine. Let's say it goes to the United Nations and says, absolutely, Paramount owns this Klingon. And say, all right. Uh, then I write a book in Klingon, but I change one of the words mm-hmm. to something else. And I say, well, that's not enough. Okay, how many? Just change a few more words. Change the word for warship. Change the word for Klingon. And just create an entire relax where every single word is slightly different, but the grammar is still the same. Try to copyright a grammar. That's not going to work. You're going to say, no, no, no. Paramount owns the right to put an adjective after a noun. No. (laughs) It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous on the face of it. There's no way it could ever be done. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. It's, I've never... I've never thought about it through to the extent to, to realize that like even even you as the creator of Valyrian you don't yeah. own Valyrian. Yeah. So so who would who would you consider would you consider yourself a speaker of of all the languages you speak? No. Of you languages you created, sorry. No. I 
I don't have the type of conversational fluency that would allow me to consider myself fluent in any of those languages. Like all of them well below even Russian and I wouldn't consider myself close to fluent in Russian. <laughs> do, do any of the fictional characters? Do, do they... Well, they should. Know, they're born the, with those languages, they live with oh, them, yeah. but then at the same time... They should all be fluent then, yeah. But they don't, ex they don't actually exist. Yeah. It's kind of mind-blowing, right? Because you have to... This is the thing that, that really... Mm -hmm. That really stuck with me after, after, a, after attending a Dothraki class. I came mm -hmm. out of that and I thought, okay, this is a language class. Yeah. But it's totally not... It's totally fictional. Well, the, the, lang the language is... Yeah. The language isn't fictional. The speakers are fictional. The country is fictional. The universe is fictional. Mm -hmm. But the language is real, as real as any other language. I mean, none of them are actually things. It's fascinating that it that it that that's how it works. Yeah. So if somebody if somebody is is hearing you speak about language creation and the way that it is a, in a way it's a means of self expression, mm -hmm. what? And and they feel called to kind of join or become interested. Where where do you start? Where do you start finding out even how to do this? Well, the best place to go is the Language Creation Society's homepage, which is conlang.org, because they have um, they have a collection of resources that will send you to every print and online resource you could want for next steps. So all the communities. All the online guides, all the print guides, everything is collected there. Um, so that's that's really that's a really good place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you were, how quickly do you think you could you could get cracking? So say I'm, I speak German, English, French, Welsh. Mm -hmm. I've got some passable others. Do I have Do I have enough to get cracking? You have too many. I have too many. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. I don't have anywhere near as many as I would like. <laughs> you don't need to. You don't need to speak. You don't need to speak languages. I mean, you just sit down and start creating your first language, and that's it. I mean, if you if you want to do it well, um, studying linguistics to an extent helps you. Mm -hmm. Studying other languages to an extent helps you, and then simply doing it helps you. In other words, practice. Um, but. I guess the the best thing to do is um, just at the outset, remember that every single choice that you're making is an active choice. Nothing simply has to be a particular way mm -hmm. in any potential language. Nothing has to be that way. And so if you keep that in mind and consciously make each choice, then you'll be fine. Even the internal logic that you feel has to be there your it's your choice yep absolutely it could be completely illogical yeah you don't need to make a, a language that works like human languages mm -hmm. um there have been some very successful languages that did exactly not that for example a friend of mine jeffrey henning created this language called fifth f-i-t-h it works based on last in first out stack grammar which is something that only works for computers um, and it's like, if you try to use it as a human being, it's just uh, not going to work very well. Like it, it doesn't make sense to a human mind. 
And so you could do something like that. You can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. yeah. It really is an art form. Mm -hmm. It really is a, a very, a very special art form. Out of all the languages you've created, are there commonalities in terms of the sounds that you like and the, you know, the vocab type behavior that you like? Well, uh, two things. One, there are commonalities in that um, most of the languages I've created for shows and movies are constrained by the fact that they want it to be easy to pronounce by mm -hmm. the actors, which is, it's quite a constraint. <laughs> um You look so cross. <laughs> yeah, you can't really, you can't really do something super, super inventive. Mm -hmm. Like some of the most, uh, oddly enough, the most wild and out there, like uh, phonological systems I ever created were for a show called Face Off, where um, it was a makeup challenge show. It was a reality show where I was invited to be a guest judge for one episode. And what they were going to do was they were going to, they had me create sound files for six different, you know, hypothetical languages. So I didn't actually create the languages, but I created sound files that were like a sentence long. Um, and they were supposed to use those sound files to base their makeup on for like this alien or creature. And so I was like, all right, Th these didn't have to mean anything, but also like I didn't have to be constrained by anything. They wanted them to sound really different. And so I created some really, really weird and out there stuff for that. I mean, otherwise it's got to be pretty easy. <laughs> so, I mean, it's constrained in that way artificially. But then uh, from the other perspective, it's a question I really can't answer. It's somebody that's going to have to look at my work from the outside and say, oh, well, look at this. This shows up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I'm, I hope I'm dead when that happens because I don't want to know about it. <laughs> It's probably going to be stuff I don't like. I'll be like, oh, I didn't mean to do that. You know, I didn't mean <laughs> for all this thing to keep showing up. Yeah, so somebody else is going to need to do that work. And so it's not like a it signature. Out. It might, well, it's not done on purpose, I'll, I'll say. <laughs> So you you told me earlier your favorite language, which yeah has escaped me. Yeah, it's a, it was called Arathiant. Arathiant. Uh -huh. What's that like? What does it do? It's um, it's got uh, to my mind, it's got a very a natural phonology. It just suits. It just kind of fits very well. I don't know. It really it's it's really easy for me, um, and it's got uh, it's got a noun class system. So this is a, a, a nice analog is Swahili. It's got more. No, I, I say since since they count the singulars and plurals as separate classes, it has fewer classes than Swahili's, but more semantic classes. And the semantic classes make a little bit. Uh, they cohere a little clo more closely, and they're a little bit alien. Um, it's got a really wild system for verbs where it's got like a really thick auxiliary that's separate from the main verb. And it was done so that you could drop verbs. You could either drop the main verb or drop the auxiliary um, and still recover meaning very well. And the noun class system helped to support that. Um, I loved the intonational system I created for that. The writing system is really cool. Um, I loved creating words. It was just, man, I love the whole bit. It's a really cool language. Mm -hmm. Do you create... A, a pragmatic environment for your language? Do, do you create a vision for the language in use? 
Yeah, I mean that's really that's really something that shows up in translation, uh-huh. and it depends on my read of the scene, which is sometimes incorrect. <laughs> it's always interesting. Like you can read a scene on a script page, but but be totally surprised by it when you see it on film because it was like, oh, I didn't think that that was what was going to happen, <laughs> <laughs> or or like you know, oh, I misunderstood how that was supposed to be intoned, or I misunderstood like what was what that was referring to. That happens a lot. Um, but yeah, no, so it just, it just depends, um, on what I'm given to translate. That's where the pragmatics show up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In terms of language creation and the language creation community, is there somebody that you admire? Yeah. Tons of people. Mm -hmm. Like I've learned from tons of people. Just give you a laundry list of names here. Matt Pearson, Doug Ball, Sylvia Sotomayor, um, Sally Caves, uh, Dirk Elzinga, definitely. Um, let's see, who else? Is there one thing that all these people do? That oh no, a bunch of different things. Uh-huh. Uh, throwing oh, definitely throwing Jeffrey Henning. Whom I'm already mentioned uh, Dennis Moskowitz. Um, no, there isn't one thing. I mean, you know, they they all have their languages. They're all very different. Oh God, of course, John Quijada. Sorry, John. <laughs> she should have been first. Um, but um, you know. They, I guess uh, this is the way to, this is the thing that they have in common. Every single language must have some top level goals. Even if the goal is very simple, simply like this is going to be as good a naturalistic language as I can. Um, and the question is, how do they fulfill those goals? How well do they meet those goals? Um, and what's the process? Um, and all of, all of the people I mentioned, David Bell was another one. Um, all of those people I mentioned put a lot of work into making sure that they successfully fulfill their goals and they go about it in a very creative and very interesting way and something that makes linguistic sense. And so, you know, that's, that's what I think any language creator would aspire to. That's awesome. In the future, Hmm. do you, what's, what's your vision for where you're going to take language creation? Just, Make more? Make one language bigger? Teach? I'd like to make fewer, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I've had too many. Um, you know, especially with the ones for TV shows and films. Like, they're fans of those languages, and I can't really, I can't really, like, work with them, you know, like, expand those languages to meet their needs because I'm always working on something new. Mm-hmm. My time has been taken up. Really, it's just... I mean, in a way, this career of mine over 10 years is almost embarrassing. It would have been a dream of any language creator to work on one television show, you know, one show. It didn't even have to be a successful show. Um, And, you know, I've worked on more than 20, some of them extremely successful. Um, It's too much. Um, And so I need to be able to work on that old stuff so that if people actually want to use those languages and stuff, they can actually use them. You know? mm. Vocabularies aren't big enough. So yeah, I'd love to keep working on them. Mm. Other than that, you know, love to do more Duolingo courses. Um, and I'd love to get more people work. I've already started doing that. I've, uh, I've hired three different assistants for three different shows I'm working on this year. So that's, that's really exciting for me because I'm able to get other people's names out there, get them experience. Um, hopefully they'll be able to work on shows on their own one day soon. Mm-hmm. Sort of like what happened with Navi? 
Navi? Navi, the av- language from Avatar. Oh, yeah. But that which was, was developed much further, right? That was, yeah, it was created by Paul Fromer. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that had a, a really big fan community right at the outset. So there was a lot of, um, you know, there was a lot of motivation there. Mm-hmm. And Paul is a super, super great guy. And so, like, he just, you know, he really worked with that fan community. Um, the languages on Game of Thrones never had a fan community like that. Um, yeah, it was like maybe six people. Um, and they kind of got what they needed. Um, and then, like, yeah, none of the languages I created ever had as big a fan community. The only thing that came close was the language I created for the hundred that still has a fan community. And I'm trying to do stuff for them. Um because you know it's it's just it's motivating right if mm-hmm. you have people that are actually interested in it and who ask you about it it's really cool um and i just hadn't really experienced that till i worked on the hundred um anyway so yeah i'm trying to and i don't have enough time but i'm trying to i'm trying to give them what they need so they can still work with the language and do stuff but of course that one's unique because that's a language that's a futuristic version of the english so um, they can actually create words of their own, mm-hmm. and they do, and they speak in it. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Cool. I think we we language learners or people who people who have this desire for me at least every time I engage with a new language, I've mm-hmm. got it at the moment with sign languages, mm-hmm. where I would love to do a little bit of BSL. I find myself fascinated by it, but I feel. I feel like a duty to the languages I'm already learning. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. look, no, I've, I'm not even done with Welsh yet. And <laughs> stupid, right? Because I'm never going to be done. Yeah. And and I'm, I've been playing around with Chinese. I've been learning a bit of Chinese. So <laughs> there's just, just, I feel like, oh, there's no space. Where is it going to fit in? So it sounds actually really tempting and playful and fun and and leisurely to think, well, with a conlang, I've got even less of a responsibility as a learner. Yeah. I, you know, honestly, I wish that for language study, whether it was created languages or natural languages, there were less pressure on being fluent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily need to be the end goal. I mean, first you can do it for enjoyment, but second, learning any bit of a language is pretty great, isn't it? I mean... Just even knowing how to say a few things, mm-hmm. that's fantastic. It's not like you have to feel like a failure because you're not fluent. You know? No, that's true. That is most of what this show is about, and still I get totally caught up in it. <laughs> it's not wanting to be fluent for the status. It's just wanting to... don't know. <laughs> just get somewhere. You're wanting to... I guess because you know from having done a few languages before, you know the size of this language, yeah. the size of the whole... You know, like. Chinese, oh my God, the, the the amount of knowledge, it's literally all of human knowledge that you want to have again, yeah. just different. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. It's really frustrating because you can't, you just, you, you can't because you can't be born again and just start again. Yeah. <laughs> so a conlang that only has four and a half thousand words yeah, sounds but, pretty tempting. <laughs> yeah, but also it's a full grammar, you know. True, true. And not even that easy, like no. we said before. No, not a bit. No. <laughs> well, not that easy for us. It'd be easy for Dothraki folks. Okay. Sure. So 
what we <laughs> what we do on 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 the fluent show mm. to sign off is what I do with my guests is I say goodbye mm. in English, and you can say goodbye in any language of your choosing. Mm. So you can pick whichever language you would like. Go Spanish if you want. Um, so it's goodbye from me. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from David Peterson. Guerrosilas. Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our support perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram, hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.